beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. With these simple words, time as we know it begins. God sets out to display his infinite glory and love by speaking into existence 
the very atoms that make up the molecules that make up everything in the universe. Out of an unfathomable darkness, he calls forth light. Seas and rivers are dug out of the newly formed earth. Mountains stretch into the stratosphere, while valleys are sculpted from the soil. Green shoots make their way into the new sunlight. Living creatures in their various forms fill the waters and land and air. The earth thrives with life and color. It's every inch unique and blessed. Beyond the earth, he takes the particles of space and forms innumerable planets, stars, and wonders known only to him. He looks at all he has created and says with joy, it is good. But his creation is not yet finished. Of all he has made, these final creatures will be his crowning glory. His beloved children, blessed with the gift of free will and choice, bearing in their soul the stamp of his own image. They will give him the most joy and potentially the most heartbreak. Nevertheless, he reaches into the earth, draws up a handful of soil, and fashions Adam and Eve. This first human couple immediately relates face to face with their creator and knows his love to their very core. He blesses them with a home, a garden containing all they will ever need. They explore its every inch and care for its plants and animals, never tiring of the paradise God has given them. He walks with them, his heart one with theirs. There is no judgment, no fear, and no shame. But if humans are to love freely, they must also have the choice not to love. And so, God places two trees in the middle of the garden. One, the tree of life, is like the other trees of the garden, good for them to eat of and enjoy. But beside it stands another tree, wholly unlike anything else in the garden. God warns the couple not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for its fruit only leads to death, something the innocent couple knows nothing about. God looks at his beloved creation now in its completeness and proclaims, it is very good. But there is one in the heavenly realms who does not rejoice at God's creation. His adversary, Satan, seeks revenge. He devises a plan to hit God where it will hurt the most. He will strike at God's relationship with his newly created children. Disguising himself as a serpent, Satan speaks with Eve, twisting God's words around as a snake entwines itself around its prey. She begins to doubt, wondering if God is not as good and loving as he has always seemed. Perhaps he has been holding out on them, keeping them from being like him. She plucks a fruit from the branch, raises it to her lips, and takes a bite. She is quick to give Adam the fruit as well, and he, too, eats of it. The world around them reels as the fruit does its work, 
opening their eyes to the terrifying truth of what they have done. For the first time in their existence, God's spirit has departed from theirs, leaving them alone and terrifyingly vulnerable. Feelings they have never known overwhelm them. Shame, fear, anger, utter loneliness, and darkest despair. They hide as God approaches, but he already knows their choice. His heart broke the moment they chose their own way. But his love compels him forward. The task now is restoration. But to do that, much suffering and darkness must be endured. Yet, Adam and Eve are given a promise filled with hope. A descendant of this now fallen couple will one day arise to defeat sin and death forever. God sends Adam and Eve from the garden and into a world now corrupted by their sin. He cannot allow them to remain in the garden and live forever broken and separated from him. For such a fate is worse than death. So he sends them away even as it breaks his heart to do so. But one day, he will raise up a new Adam from their family, and he will restore all. Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good morning, parishioners, or whenever you're listening, or good evening, good middle of the night. Whatever you are listening, uh, folks on television, whatever, uh, it's good to see you all here, here this morning. We're uh, doing the series, um, The Forest in the Trees. Never done anything quite like this before. We're, we're going to give the big picture um, and help people see the forest in the trees and help see where, where we fit, where our story fits into the various stories that you find in the big story of the Bible. It's a really important series, I think, because you know, the Bible is a pretty thick book. And it's got a lot of stories in it. And it's easy to get the chronology mixed up. It's easy to get the stories confused. It's easy to get, you know, kind of things scrambled. It's easy not to be able to see how they all fit together and, and what the point of the whole thing is. Uh, that confusion that we're talking about uh, was really captured uh, recently by um, some tests that were given, theological questions that were given to first through third graders. And... Um, uh, I, I have a collection of a few of them. Actually, I had it, and, and I lost it, so I'll have to go on the board here. Here's, here's a few of the answers that uh, Sunday school kids, first to third grade, give to, gave to certain uh, questions. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, uh, God, <laughs> you can tell what kind of beer his dad drinks, God got tired of creating the world, so he took the Sabbath off, like you do. Another kid said, Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree with a talking snake. A little confusion there. Noah's wife was called Joan of Arc. <laughs> Noah built the ark, and the animals come to it in, in pairs. <laughs> I love this one. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day, but a ball of fire at night. <laughs> These are actual answers the kids gave. Uh, I'm censoring a joke right now. I'm going to move on. The Jews, the Jews were a proud people, and throughout history, they had trouble with unsympathetic genitals. <laughs> you meant Gentiles, I'm sure. <laughs> I hate unsympathetic genitals, though. <clears throat> Moving on. Samson slayed the Philistines with the Acts of the Apostles, <laughs> some kid thought. 
And did you know that the Egyptians got drowned in the desert, but afterwards Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. <laughs> the first command was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. He's <laughs> kind of got a point there, actually. The seventh commandment is, thou shalt not admit adultery. <laughs> the one command that some folks have no trouble obeying. David was a Hebrew king who was skilled at playing the liar. <laughs> he fought with the Finkelsteins, a race of people who lived in Bible times. <laughs> Those nasty Finkelsteins, they're always getting you, you know. Uh, Solomon was David's wise son and had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> Concubines, porcupines, pretty much the same thing. Jesus taught us the golden rule, one kid thought, which says to do one to others before they do one to you. I know a lot of people who live by that uh, golden rule. The epistles were the wives of the apostles. <laughs> Where did they come up with this stuff? There's a lot of confusion out there. Jesus called the 12 opossums, including St. Matthew, who was a taxi man. He's <laughs> driving around in his taxi mobile. St. Paul cavorted to Christianity and preached holy acrimony, which is another name for marriage. <laughs> Says a lot about this kid's family here. And finally, the Bible teaches that a man should only have one wife. This is called monotony. <laughs> that, that's why you can't admit adultery, I guess. It's, uh. So you can see why there's a need for some foundational Bible teaching to get the story straight. Uh, there's a lot of bad theology going on out there. So what we're going to do is each uh, message, we'll start with uh, kind of an illumination point like that, like graphic that we, we had. And then we're going to read a narrative that will cover a period of time in the Bible. And we're going to go chronologically. Uh, today we're only covering the first three chapters, but we'll pick up speed starting next week. Uh, but the narrative will cover the whole storyline. And then the message uh, will we'll hit on several of the main points that relate to us. Okay, so we'll kind of get, start real broad and then get kind of narrow. And we'll just lift up in the message a couple of the trees in that section of the forest that we dealt with um, uh, in, in, in that particular uh, week. And so hopefully we'll get a sense of the big picture and begin to get a sense of how we fit into uh, the storyline as well. So we're talking about the creation today and we're talking about the fall. Creation and fall. One of the things I, I first want to do, oh yeah, so this is a little timeline. We're going to develop this timeline as we go on. Uh, big trees and little trees. Got the creation, and they got Adam and Eve, and, and, the, and the fall. And we'll pick up with Noah uh, starting next week. Um, the first thing I want to hit on is kind of a preliminary point to the to message is this: there is, oh, there are a lot of a lot of people who get their bundies in an undle over the whole issue of whether this is figurative or literal. Uh, there's a segment of Christianity today where folks think that. If you don't take it literally, well, then you don't really believe the Bible is God's word. If you don't believe it literally, then you're a liberal. Uh, and their assumption is that it's a new phenomenon. Like it's only in recent time that liberals have started to take some parts of the Bible as, as, as figurative or as, as, as inspired myth or something of the sort. The reality is that, th that what's, what's new, what's recent, is this idea that everything's supposed to be literal and that if you don't think it's literal, it's not true. That's what's new. The truth is that going back to the very beginning of the church, and even before that, with the ancient Jews, there's always been much discussion among God's people about what parts of the Bible should be taken literally, what parts should be taken figuratively. There's always been, folks, especially with regard to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, 
uh, that have seen that as being more figurative than literal. Uh, and then there's been folks who have disagreed with that. Uh, in the early church, especially in the eastern part of the empire, the majority of folks understood Genesis 1 through 3 as being more symbolic. They, they, they noticed if you take it literally, it causes certain unanswerable questions. How do you have light before there's a sun and, 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 and a moon? And uh, how do you have 24-hour days before there's a sun and a moon that's created on the fourth day? And things like that. And so um, they, they, Augustine, Origen, others uh, thought that this was meant to uh, be an inspired, non-literal account of creation and non-literal account of the fall. That's always been, uh, been there. Even C.S. Lewis, some folks are surprised to hear this, who's sort of the darling of evangelicals. He's the sort of major apologist uh, for Christianity. He he said this. He was a specialist of mythology at Oxford University, and he held that that there are things you can say through myth or symbolic literature that you can't say with just a literal account. You can draw out the meaning of things uh, in some ways more profound than you can with a literal report. Origen held the same thing in the early church. The most inspired things, he thought, were the non-literal things. And so, with regard to the the story of the Garden of Eden, uh, C.S. Lewis said that um, this refers to a literal event. There was a literal fall. Something catastrophic happened. But what we have in the Bible is a a symbolic expression of that to draw out the meaning of that, the significance, which you'll miss if you take it all literally. Um, So he held that it's more powerful precisely because it's not literal. No, some folks will agree with that. Some folks won't agree with it. We here at Wilderness Church have always wanted to hold uh, on these kind of questions uh, the the standard church position, which is that there's room for disagreement about this kind of stuff. I appreciate the fact here that that, uh, here at Wilderness Church just had a discussion a couple weeks ago uh, with with, uh, two younger guys who are young earth creationists. And young earth creationists believe that Genesis is a straightforward literal account. And uh, they think the earth is 10,000 years old. So the whole scientific deal that the earth says, oh, the earth is 4.6 billion years old, and that human beings uh, were arrived at through a process of evolution, that's altogether wrong. That's what they held. But we had a little discussion about that, and they know I don't agree with that. But like the one guy said, he goes, but you know what, I love the vision of this church and, 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 and the kingdom theology of it, and this is a minor point, and we don't have to agree on everything. I went, amen. You're absolutely right about that. Um, and so there's room for, 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 for differences of opinion here. The one thing we've always said, however, is this. Whatever your opinion is, share it for sure, but, but don't make a doctrine out of it. Uh, don't, don't make it an obstacle that people have to jump over to get into the kingdom. Uh, some people do that. They have this theology as a package deal. I'll talk about that at this conference. This all or nothing thing. And unless you agree with us on every point, you can't get into the kingdom. And that, folks, is just tragic. On the cross, you know, the thief says, can I be with you today in paradise? And Jesus says, well, how old do you think the earth is? <laughs> no. He says, yes, today you'll be with me in paradise. We don't want to make getting into the kingdom harder than Jesus made it, right? And it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. So there's room for a difference of, of, of opinion on this thing. One thing that's really important is whenever we're interpreting the Bible is to always try to understand it in, in its original context. Now, the, the context of the Old Testament it's called the ancient Near East. It includes Egypt and Canaan, Palestine, that whole, that whole area, uh, Mesopotamia. And uh, it's called the ancient Near East. And what we know is that uh, we've now discovered a number of creation stories in the cultures of the ancient Near East. In fact, a number of these creation stories, most scholars date prior to the biblical story. 
In fact, the, the biblical story parallels these other stories, at least some of these other stories, in certain respects. For example, in the Babylonian account, um, we have the six days of creation, just like we have in, in the biblical account. And it's the same order and the same weirdness, too, because you have uh, light being created before there's the sun and the moon. And so there's a lot of stylistic similarities there. Uh, what we know about these, these cultures, however, is this. Those creation stories weren't told, in some cases sung, they, were, they weren't told or sung for the purposes of explaining, in any kind of sort of scientific way, how the world came to be. That wasn't the question they lived in. The question they lived in was this. Who do we look to as the highest God, and who do we trust to protect us? In these other ancient Near Eastern accounts, there's, there's always a battle that goes on before the creation of the world and the creation of human beings. And the winner of that battle was Marduk defeated Tiamat in, 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 in one case. Uh, he, he then carves out of the body of the defeated Tiamat, this evil deity, creates human beings and creates the world. So we're formed by the victorious good God, but we're made out of the material of the defeated bad God. And that was their way, it was kind of their account of the fall. They're trying to explain, why are human beings such a contradiction? We're never as good as we know we should be. You see, we're always because we're formed with a good God, but out of this bad material. That was, that, that was their way of explaining it. But their point was not to give a, a scientific account of, the, of creation, but rather to say, who can we look to to protect us from evil and from destruction and to fight with us in our battles? And, and so they would look to the victorious God uh, and, and, and exalt him because he was the one who formed this world uh, by defeating the other forces of evil. The question wasn't how, the question was who. So also in the biblical account, if you understand it in the ancient Near East, the question isn't how, the question is who. And what the Old Testament authors say is it's not Baal or Marduk or any other deity that created this world, it was Yahweh. You find... Accounts in the Old Testament of God battling other gods, other forces. I talk about that in the book God at War. And in fact, in some of those uh, warfare accounts that you find in various parts of the Bible, we know that they actually took the songs that were sung in these other cultures and imported them into the Bible. They just took out the name of Baal or Marduk and put in Yahweh. It was a song that they were all singing, so they just said, well, let's use that to Yahweh. Kind of the way that Charles Wesley would take some of bar tunes and turn them into Christian songs. People know these songs, well, let's just Christianize them. That's what the, the, the guy was doing. But what's fascinating is that when, when it comes to Genesis 1, it's not the similarities with these other accounts that stands out. It's the difference. Because the author of Genesis 1 says this, it wasn't Baal or Marduk or any other god, it was Yahweh. And Yahweh didn't have to fight anybody to become the sovereign Lord. He was always the sovereign Lord. And he didn't create the world and humanity out of some pre-existing material, let alone a defeated evil God. This God created the world by speaking it into existence. There's nothing like that in the ancient Near East. He just speaks the world into existence. So it says in Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 3 it says, And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be... He just speaks things into existence. He just wills things into existence. Doesn't need to fight anybody to do it, fight anybody to do it, doesn't need to create it out of any pre-existing matter. God speaks matter into existence. So everything we see is something that God has spoken. Uh, this is what's called in the uh, church tradition, creation ex nihilo. It means creation from nothing. God created from nothing. He just spe- His speaking 
is what creates this material reality. Now, there are some folks today who, for various reasons, some theologians who are denying the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Uh, they hold that the world, or some kind of world, some kind of matter, is as, is as ancient as God. It's eternal alongside of God. So God kind of has to put up with it and do the best he can with it. But we here at Wilderness Church have always held to the traditional doctrine of creation ex nihilo because we think it's profoundly important. And here's why. If everything that exists exists only because God speaks it into being, that means that the reason why anything exists is because God wants it to exist. Matter isn't something that God had to put up with. Matter is something that God wants. How do you know? Because it exists. And God spoke it into existence. And so the whole of material existence, the whole of physical reality, can be understood to express God's artistic skill. He's speaking everything into existence. In fact, not only does he speak it into existence, but he holds it in existence. So it says in, in, in uh, Hebrews 1, for example, you find this several times in the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is sustaining all things by his powerful word. word. He's sustaining all things. I'm right now being sustained, and you are right now being sustained by his powerful word. He's speaking you into existence. And it expresses his will, it expresses his desire, it reflects his glory, it reflects his intelligence, it reflects his, his artistry, it manifests his love. Everything is here because he loves it. He speaks it into being. So if you ever wonder whether you're loved by God, ask this very important question. Do you exist? And if the answer is yes, first of all, if the answer is no, go see a therapist very quickly. (laughs) And when the answer is yes, then let that be proof enough. If the Calvary is not enough, well, then let your existence be proof enough that you're loved because he's, he's speaking you in existence. You wouldn't be existing if he didn't want you to exist, if you weren't created out of his glory, out of his love, out of his splendor. And so the whole of creation is here as a sheer gift. You see, God is he's overflowing in it with his, his abundant life. It's a gift. He's sharing himself. Everything here has a, a dance quality to it, an, uh, an artwork quality to it. It's not a matter of necessity for God. He didn't need it. He just wanted to express himself. And he wanted to share himself with others. And that's why there is being. We all exist as a manifestation of the overflow of God's love. And so the creation, every aspect of the creation reflects his glory, this gift quality. It reflects his grace, his intelligence, his, his, his artistic uh, uh, power to bring things into being. So look at the sun, for, for example. Let's, let's reflect on creation here for a moment. This ball of fire... This thing is, is, is about 865,000 miles across. Humongous. It's so large, its mass is so great, that you can fit 1.3 million Earths inside of that big helium ball. It's, it's, ama- it's humongous. But that, that star is, is not the biggest stars. You know, all the stars out there are balls of fire just like that. And ours is rather small compared to what we find out there. There, there, are, there are suns out there that are up to 2,000 times larger than our, than our, our sun. Mind-boggling. And in our galaxy called the Milky Way, we have got 400, approximately 400 billion of these suns. Billion. A thousand times a thousand is a million. A thousand millions is a billion. We've got 400 billion of those stars out there. This humongous galaxy, it's 120,000 light years across. A light year is how, 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 how far light travels in a year. And light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Going that fast, 
you were to shine a, a flashlight on one ed, ed, edge of the, the galaxy uh, across, through the center, it would take 120,000 years for the photons of that light to travel as it's going at 186,000 miles per second, 120,000 years to get to the other side. That is a huge collection of stars, 400 billion stars out there. But our galaxy, folks, our galaxy is not the only galaxy. No, there are a hundred, they now estimate, the number keeps on growing as our telescopes get better, but there's 170 billion galaxies. 170 billion galaxies, and many of them are much larger than our galaxy. We, we've got 400 billion stars, that's humongous. But we found galaxies that have up, uh, over a trillion stars. Trillion. In fact, they've recently discovered one galaxy that they estimate has a hundred trillion stars in it. One galaxy. It's absolutely mind-boggling. When you look up, if you can ever get to the top of a mountain, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I used to go out to Montana every year and go out in the woods for up on the mountaintops for three weeks by myself just to be out in the wild. And up at about 12,000 feet, miles and miles and miles away from the closest city, you can see, have you ever done that? The sky is just filled with stars. It's amazing. It's just vast. You can see that, that kind of this, the Milky Way right there, the center of the Milky Way. It's humongous. It's like, whoa. And it's so big, too. They're just like, it's like snowflakes up there. But see, even in the best conditions, the most a naked eye can see is 7,000 stars. 7,000, that is a fraction of the stars that are out there. I mean, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. You'd have to multiply that thousands and thousands and thousands of times over just to get to the number of stars in our Milky Way. Now, realize that you've got 170,000, a billion galaxies like that. They estimate that the number of stars, right now they estimate the number of stars is 10 to the 24th power. That's 10 with 24 zeros after it. In case you're wondering, that's a septillion so when you see that star-filled sky, you ain't seeing nothing, man. You'd have to multiply that trillions and trillions of times to capture the number of stars that are out there. They say that there's more stars than there are uh, grains of sand on the planet Earth. It's just mind-boggling. And the number keeps on increasing. I wouldn't be surprised if 20 years from now they don't look back and the, the number hasn't doubled as our, uh, as our knowledge of the universe uh, grows and expands with the improved uh, uh, telescopes and whatnot. It's massive. And folks... All of that is sheer gift. All of that is God just expressing himself. The, the, the magnitude, the mind-boggling, unfathomable, incomprehensible magnitude and greatness of this universe that he created reflects a little bit of his power, a little bit of his intelligence, a little bit of his artistic skill, his glory. It doesn't need to be here. It just is. He's, he, he's just putting on display himself. Some people ask, well, what's the purpose of all those stars? There must be intelligent life out there. My response is, why would you think there's intelligent life out there when there's not much of it down here? (laughs) But even if there's, there may be life out there, I don't care. God will take care of them. I don't worry about that. Um, But it could just be, see, God can create 170. He can speak 170 billion galaxies into existence as easy as he can create a frog. It's as easy to say 170 billion galaxies as it is to say green frog. See, it, it doesn't... It's not a question of, of, of power. He just speaks it into existence. He holds every molecule of every one of those stars in existence moment by moment. And when you begin to realize the magnitude and greatness of, of, of this thing we call reality, it, it just, you can't help but drive you to your knees the awesomeness of God. And that's how it is throughout nature. You ever go up to the majestic mountains 
something about the majesty of those mountains just, it, it makes you feel so small. And, and you see something of the greatness of God. There's God's bicep. Man, he's, a, he, he's an incredible God. Actually, that's probably just a little pimple at the top of his bicep. Uh, it, it's, but it's still magnificent. And the, the oceans, you know, we, we, most, of the, most of the ocean we've not yet explored. It's so vast. And it, it's, it's so full of mystery. Um, if you've got sunsets, have you ever just seen a sunset where you just want to cry? Something about the beauty of it? You're seeing a little reflection of the beauty of God. All beauty is, is, a, is, is he's the source of all that's beautiful and source of all that's, that, that's mind-boggling. Oh, the northern lights. Uh, about 20 years ago, I was up north at a camp. The only time I've ever seen this. And all of a sudden, we were out in this field, the campfire, and all of a sudden, all around us, it was, it was like that, only all around us. Like we were in the middle of this castle, and the sky was on fire, and there's violet and yellow and green. It was, I'd never seen anything. I was happy to see little, you know, down the city, you can, on the good night, just see little tiny little light things. I hardly noticed it at all. This was on fire. I laughed and I cried. It was, it was, it was amazing. It was, I'd never seen anything like it. That's a little, little reflection of the glory of God. Little reflection. All of nature just displays this. And then there's the human being. We are, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible says. You, you look at the intricacy of our, our, just how we're constituted. Look at the way the eye operates. It, it's amazing. It's amazing, the intelligence that goes into that. Some scientists will come along and say, well, you know, really, it's not that amazing. Because, you see, we've been evolving for you know, the, the half, a, half a billion years. And, and, and uh, we, we can explain scientifically how this all comes about. I'm not arguing against that. That's a how question. I'm talking about a who thing here, all right? Uh, how, how God spoke it into being isn't the issue. I just want us to see the intricacy of it and marvel at who did this. And who did this was Jesus Christ, who holds all things in existence by his powerful word. And then, then you've got the human brain. Look at that, folks. There, there's a little map of the human brain. This brain... You have got a universe between your ears. They estimate that there are more synaptic connections between neurons in your brain, dendrites and synapses, more possible connections in your brain than there are stars in the sky. It's, it's absolutely mind-boggling. And it's mostly, we're just learning about it, really. It's, it's so mysterious. And the process by which it works is absolutely, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I have speechless when you think about it. It's like... Your brain responds to your environment. Things come in, stimuli comes in. Your brain interprets all of that. At, at one three thousandth of a second, you, it, your brain is this electromagnetic, highly intricate, it, more complex than all the stars in the sky. It, it's got these neurons popping on one another to decode stimuli coming in, which allows you to interpret it to know that you're sitting in an auditorium listening to this weird guy up on stage. You see, as, as I say the word stage, you know what the word stage is because... Your br- that, that, that sound wave activated your brain and, and it went to the right neural net that interprets the word stage. Every word you've ever learned is, is a little neural net that decodes it for you. So here I am. Uh, my brain's telling my tongue to move in a certain way and my mouth to move in a certain way and my hands obviously to move in a certain way. And I'm jiggling the airways. The airways are going like this. The airways come into your ears and jiggle your eardrums which stimulate your nervous system that send a message up to that incredible uh, computer in between your ears. And now all those trillions and trillions of the neurons, dendrites, synapses start firing on, each, on one another in, in super fast ways so that you know what the word stage is. You know that I'm up here. You know that the person next to you didn't take a shower. All that you're interpreting because there's a distinct neural net for all of it. And so uh, this experience we're having, this marvelous moment right now, is all an electromagnetic phenomenon between your ears. 
You see, I, I'm really inside you. <laughs> uh, the, only, the only me you know is the one that is an electromagnetic thing inside of you. And, and we're aware of it. And we don't know how we're aware of it. What is consciousness knows and knows. But folks, I'm not interested in the how. I'm interested in the who. And the who is God who is holding me in existence right now. He's speaking me. He's speaking you. The airwaves. All of it. It shows the glory of God. It's fantastic. Mind-boggling. Just unfathomable. Uh, I pray we can stay awake to the wonder of it all. We get used to this. We get used to this, but it's, oh, it's just, it freaks you out when you really can look at it. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. A God who could speak all of that into existence. Well, look at, surely he would be powerful enough to stop cancer. Or, or powerful enough to heal person of malaria. How is it that we live in this universe? And this brings us into Genesis 3 now. We live in this universe that is so unfathomably beautiful, but it is also, at times, unfathomably horrific. There's a design. I I wrestled in college when I was trying to make my way back into the faith after having lost my faith. I was wrestling with this whole thing about God, and and, and there's a time where I thought the design and the magnitude and the grandeur of the stars and everything else... There's got to be a God. But you look at the Holocaust and, and the tornadoes and earthquakes and all of that, and there can't be a God. And that's the contradiction we live in. It's unfathomable beauty. can't be by chance. But there's such unfathomable ugliness, it can't be by design. We live in this contradiction. We've got famines where kids starve to death. Thousands, millions of kids starve to death. Every minute, there's about a dozen kids on average who die of starvation or some disease related to starvation. Every minute, famine all over the place. You've got mudslides like we had in Mexico this last week. Buried a whole town. People suffocated. Children suffocated because of a mudslide. Buried in mud. You've got earthquakes and floods like we've seen in Colorado that just devastate people, devastate property, and cause all this suffering. You've got hurricanes that destroy uh, entire towns, sometimes cities. You've got tornadoes like hit Oklahoma last year and other places, but it levels entire cities and takes the lives of children. You've got volcanoes, which when sometimes they explode, they, they burn entire cities alive. You've got cancer and malaria and HIV and E. coli and muscular dystrophy and parasites and hookworms that get in the stomachs of little kids in third world and, and, and the little nutrition they can get, those parasites and hookworms steal it from them so the kids die of starvation anyways. You've, you've, got, you've got skin-eating bacteria, if you've ever seen this. It's demonic. It just eats away the skin of people. You've got babies. Here we are in this creation that's so unimaginably beautiful and glorious and yet babies are born without skin sometimes, or they're born without eyes, or born without their limbs, or born with their brains outside of their head, or their organs outside of their body, and they die in excruciating death. How is it possible that it could be this glorious and this horrific? That's the question. Surely God could stop all of this. So this is why some folks today are saying, uh, we've got to get rid of that doctrine of creation next nihilo. Uh, you know, there's always been matter that God's had to work with, and, and he's doing the best he can. And so they deny that God's all-powerful. And there's others who say, no, no, God is all-powerful. We've got to affirm that God's all-powerful. But then they draw the conclusion that malaria and HIV and hookworm parasite and all the other diseases and skin-eating bacteria, well, that's all part of God's great design. Every disaster is part of great, God's great plan. Every earthquake 
This is all part of his wonderful plan. But as Jessica said so beautifully and powerfully several weeks ago, the God that we know in Jesus Christ isn't a God who goes around killing kids by inflicting them with cancer. That can't be the answer. And so this isn't evil. No, this is evil. This is evil. The Bible, I submit to you, offers a different explanation, and it's found in Genesis 3. I don't take it to be a literal account, but I take it to be an account that is more powerful because it's symbolic, but it expresses a literal thing that happened long ago. We don't know exactly how it ha- happened, as C.S. Lewis said, but, but the meaning of it is captured in Genesis 3. It's a story of about a rebellion, and the rebellion changed and transformed everything. When human beings rebelled against God, it screwed up the planet, and now everything is corrupt. So here's why. We were made in the image of God. And part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we're created to be his co-rulers here on earth. We're created to administrate his providence here on earth. We're, we're, we're created to carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. He's given us this authority. We are to reflect his character. Having received, being recipients of his love, out of fellowship with him, we're to reflect his character to each other, to the earth, and to the animal kingdom. Uh, John Wesley summed this up in a beautiful way in his Doctrine of Four Loves. We teach it here in our, uh, some of our sojourners classes. The Doctrine of Four Loves. And it says this. We're created to receive God's love in life and fullness, and out of that fullness, reflect God's love back to Him. So we're created to love God, and then reflect God's love to ourselves, reflect God's love to other people, and then reflect God's love to the earth and the animal kingdom. Four loves. So we, we're to agree with God about his intrinsic worth. And so we love him. And then we, we agree, to agree with God about our intrinsic worth. Just because we're created by God as expressions of his love, we love ourselves. And then we're created to agree with God about the intrinsic worth that other people have because they're created by God as expressions of his love. And we're created to love the earth and the animal kingdom because they are created by God and are expressions of his love. The four loves that's what we're called to, 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 to live out. But love, as was said in the narrative, love requires a choice. That's expressed in the Bible by this concept of covenant. A covenant is a committed choice reflecting love. It's a commitment. And so God's always had covenantal relationships with his people, which give the conditions of this relationship. In the garden, here's the covenant. The covenant is simply to honor or to trust God's provision and to honor his prohibition. The provision is represented by the tree of life. We're to trust God for life. All that we need for life, our fullness comes from him. And the prohibition is represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, this I take to be not a temptation that God just arbitrarily put in the garden. Uh, this, this is a way, it's a loving no trespassing sign from God. It's a way of God saying this. For you to be in my image the way you're supposed to be, don't try to be in my image in the way that you're not supposed to be. For you to be like me in terms of how you love, don't try to be like me in terms of what you think you know. He is omniscient. He he knows good and evil. He defines good and evil. And if we try to do that, it ruins our capacity to love. You see? And so God is saying, listen, reflect my love, but leave all judgment to me. I'll define good and evil, and then you just trust me on that call. Don't don't you try to do it, because you won't be able to love the way you're supposed to love if, if you engage in that. And, and the, the two trees, notice in Genesis 3, they're in, in the center of the garden. Why, why is that? And I think it's because God is saying, 
that life as God intends it, life in Eden revolves around, revolves around our honoring the prohibition and trusting for the provision. We're to get all of our life from God and therefore love as he loves and leave all judgment to God. Now, unfortunately, as the story goes, we rebelled. We violated the prohibition. We ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we think we can define good and evil. And we always do it in a self-centered way to meet our own needs. And so what happens, and this is reflected in the story, instead of just loving God because of his intrinsic worth, we judge God. We judge God to be less beautiful than he is. And so Adam and Eve hide from him. And, and we think we've got to earn his love, and we think we've got to placate his wrath. That's what religion's always been about. It's because we, have a, we judge God to be less beautiful than he really is. We believe the serpent's lie. And then we judge ourselves. Not as, it's not enough to have intrinsic worth from God. We think we've got to earn our worth, even to ourselves. And the result of that is that we hide from ourselves. We have trouble being honest with ourselves. We, we feel shame. We try to hide. And we try to then earn our worth by what we do and what we acquire and what we achieve. And then instead of loving other people the way we're called to love, we judge other people. If they benefit us, we judge them as being worth loving. But if they don't benefit us, or if they threaten us, we judge them as being worth killing. We don't reflect God's character because we take wrath and judgment to ourselves. And then with the earth and the animal kingdom, well, we judge them. Uh, we, we, we judge that they only have worth insofar as they benefit us. They please us. We can use them. And so now instead of taking care of the earth and the animal kingdom, we end up exploiting and abusing the earth and the animal kingdom. It's all a result of the fall. And because we're the landlords of this planet, we're to the administrators, God's co-rulers here on this planet, when we fall, everything underneath us gets corrupted. Everything gets tainted. Our authority is taken from us, and now when we rebelled against God, we opened the floodgates to the principalities and the powers. And we allowed these forces that we were to guard the garden against. God had told Adam, guard the garden. Well, when we rebelled, we stopped guarding the garden. Now the, the, the floodgates are open up for these corrupting powers to come in. And whereas God is the giver of all that's good and giver of abundant life, Satan is the thief that comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. And so we don't, you don't find this in the Genesis account, but we learn from the New Testament that the angels were, had fallen before human beings ever had come around. There had been a warfare up there. And now they, with their evil character and destructive intents, are allowed to re-corruption re, re, re here uh, on our planet. Uh, that's why Jesus says that Satan is the prince of this world three times in the book of John. The lord of this world. Uh, Paul calls him the god of this age and the principality and power of the air. John says he controls the entire world. Uh, the New Testament authors always see behind sickness, disease, infirmities, and corruption, they, 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 they diagnose that there's a corrupting influence. In fact, behind death, they see Satan. Satan's called the lord of death, Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, the way we experience the world right now is not the way God intended it because now this world, even into the very fabric of nature, the fall has touched everything. Corrupting powers touch everything. We still can see the glory of God. Yes, as I said, so much of it displays God's glory, but we also see so much that doesn't display His glory. So much that points to the God who's a giver of life and giver of beauty and giver of goodness, but so much that points to the thief who steals and kills all life and goodness. We, this world looks like a war zone between outrageous good and outrageous evil because it is a war zone between outrageous good and outrageous evil. And, and, and so we shouldn't blame God when the tornado hits or when uh, you see children starving to death or earthquakes takes lives or your child dies. Don't blame God. No, God's on the side of good. 
we should say, as Jesus said in, in, in the book of Matthew, this an enemy has done. This an enemy has done. We're at war here. We've got to know what comes from who. And if it's good and beautiful, it's, it, it, it comes from the one who is the giver of all that's good and beautiful. But if it's ugly and destructive, it comes from the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And that doesn't mean it's Satan or some demons behind every headache and every earthquake and every tornado or whatever. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that those things wouldn't be happening if we hadn't allowed, open the floodgates to, to allow these corrupting influences in here. And now this world, as we now find it, is one that is... Even the second law of thermodynamics, fundamental law of physics, all things tend towards decay. That doesn't look like it reflects the character of the giving God. It reflects the stealer, the thief. It's all corrupted. But praise God, as the narrative said, it won't always stay that way. And in fact, praise God, the victory in one sense has already been won. It just needs to be manifested. Someday, all, right now the entire creation groans, Paul says. But someday the entire creation and all human beings will be redeemed along with it. Praise God. And he'll be victorious. So where does that leave us? I guess it closes very quickly because I'm going over here. So two minutes. Give me two minutes here. Here's what leaves us. To be a follower of Jesus means that we are called to and we are empowered to return to Eden. Uh, we are called to and empowered to once again honor the prohibition and trust the provision. We're to get all of our life, all of our worth, all of our sense of significance from what God thinks about us as He's revealed on, 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 on the cross. The cross is to be our source of everything. Uh, and so we can put aside all idolatry. And we're to honor the, the prohibition to stop eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We are called just the way, to love the way God loves us on, on Calvary. Uh, and that means we love not based on how people benefit us or please us. No, we love all people at all times, no ifs, ands, or buts. That's why we're called to love even our enemies and to swear off all violence. Why? Because they are creatures of God. Uh, they've been given life by God. He's speaking them into existence, and we have no right to take it. It belongs to Him. And if we end up getting killed because of that, so be it. We know we live forever, so it's no big deal. Let it go. Right? You'll just live in love as Christ loved us and gave His life for us. So we're called to re return to the four loves. As we honor the pro pro uh, prohibition and trust the provision, we now reflect love back to God by the way we live. We reflect love to ourselves, not based on what we achieve or acquire, but just because we're created as an expression of love and we're saved as an expression of love. That's our worth. And we love other people for that same reason. They're, they're created by God. And finally, it means that we're called to love the earth and the animal kingdom. Throughout the Bible, you find that God cares about them deeply. He makes covenants with the land and with animals. And so to be a follower of Jesus Christ means that we take responsibility for how our choices impact the land and the animals. How our lifestyle choices and food choices impact the land and the animals. And whenever I say that, I always get some feedback that that sounds like a liberal thing, that sounds like a you know, left-wing thing, a hippie tree-hugging democratic thing. Folks, it's a Bible thing. It's the most fundamental Bible thing. It's our original mandate. And it just shows that the, the, the church so lost the, the fullness of the gospel... When it lost that call to care for creation. And we reduced it down to this little salvation message. No, it includes everything. Uh, take care to know how your choices impact the earth and the animals. And God will call us to different things. He requires from one what he doesn't require of another. But we each need to seek the Spirit on those kind of things. Live out the four loves, praise God. Live out the way it was supposed to originally be. 
reverse the curse in your life. Hallelujah. I'm going to close. I'm going to ask the prayer teams to come up here and again say if you have any need whatsoever that could, could use prayer, please come up here and, and share it with these folks. They'd, they'd love to minister to you. I would just stand as I close this in prayer. Don't forget, uh, if you want to know more about the conference, it's at the hub or the, the party will be Friday at 8.15, kids included. So come and have a good time. Be part of that. So, Abba, Father, as we leave this place, I pray for every person here and every person listening through podcasts or other means that you, Lord God, would just seal it on our hearts to live out Eden, to, to live a life revolving around the, the, the provision and the prohibition, to, to, to God, remind us to put aside all judgment and to live in love as you have loved us. Remind us, God, to be a, a people who love in all four directions, you, ourselves, others, the earth, and the animals, in Jesus' name. And all of God's lovers said, Amen. God bless you guys. Go live out. Greetings, thou good and faithful kingdom people. Welcome to the pastor's addendum to the sermon. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, There's just one thing I want to add to the message uh, that I didn't have time to address uh, during the message, and it's this. I, I said that as we look at this war zone world, we see so much that's beautiful and glorious and awesome, uh, and yet we find so much that's uh, unimaginably horrific and terrible. And uh, we need to understand that um, whatever is consistent with the character of God, uh, that that we can assign to God, that reflects his glory, but whatever is inconsistent with the character of God, uh, that that we should diagnose as coming from wills other than God, whether it's humans or, or, or uh, uh, angelic beings, um, this whole environment has been corrupted by the principalities and powers, and um, we've been co-opted by them and bring about all this violence on earth. So that's our, our grid. Now, the thing is, is, is one person asked me after the message that isn't that kind of subjective? What's good? How, how do we know what's really good? How do we know what's really beautiful? We can, we can be mistaken. Um, and so uh, how do we assess this? And um, my answer to that question is this. Uh, it's always found in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ and him crucified is the ultimate criteria by which we should assess anything, uh, whether it's human behavior or, or the nature around us. Uh, that's the criteria by which we should assess uh, whether something is of God or of not. Or, or not. Uh, John defines God as love in 1 John 4, 8. God is love. And then he defines love by pointing us to the cross, 1 John 3.16. Here's how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So John is saying that God's very essence is self-sacrificial love. In fact, his very essence, his eternal essence, this is the love that unites the three persons of the Godhead. It's the kind of love that gives its life away even to rescue enemies. Uh, it's nonviolent, enemy-embracing, self-sacrificial, beautiful, magnificent love. That's who God is. Um, and that's why that Jesus is always portrayed in the New Testament, not as one revelation among others, but rather as the revelation that trumps all others. He's the definitive, absolute revelation of God. Uh, and so it says, for example, in Hebrews 1, that God in the past has spoken various times in various ways, but in these last days, he's revealed himself through his own son, uh, who is the, the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his essence, hypostasis, his very being. Only in Christ do we find the exact representation of what God is like. We've had approximations in the past. We've had glimpses in the past. But here we see exactly what God's heart is like, what his essence is like. 
And um, uh, we see it in his fullness. The fullness of the God had dwelt in him bodily, Paul says in Colossians 2.9. That's why Jesus could say, when Philip says, show us the Father. Uh, Jesus says, have I been so long with you and yet you don't know me? John 14 here, uh, 8 and 9. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? Uh, he didn't say he was part of what the Father looks like. Uh, no, uh, he is the he is the representation, the exact representation of what the Father is like. So we don't need to go anywhere else, not even to the Old Testament, to find out what God is really like. We keep our eyes fixed on on Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus at times felt free to say, "You've heard it said unto you." Uh, and he would quote something in the Old Testament, but he says, but I say unto you this. And the most famous of these is when he says, you've heard it said unto you, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's called the lex talionis. It's the law of justice in the Old Testament. Three times we're commanded, not just permitted, but commanded uh, to have an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, uh, to, to return vengeance. But when Jesus comes along, he says, no, you've heard that, but now I say unto you, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. Uh, and so on. In fact, he makes that the criteria for becoming a child of God. He says in Matthew 5, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Um, in the same way that God's essence is this enemy-embracing, nonviolent, uh, self-sacrificial love, so also the criteria for being a child of God, to know that you've been born from above, is that you also embrace this uh, enemy-embracing, self-sacrificial love. It's, it's the definitive litmus test for whether we're truly uh, representing, representing the kingdom of God and are under his, his, his reign. Uh, Jesus says at one point, he says uh, that John the Baptist is the greatest of all the prophets uh, up to him. But then he says, but I have a testimony in John 5. I have a testimony or my witness is greater than his. So if his testimony is greater than John the Baptist, his testimony is greater than all the Old Testament. He's never to be placed alongside the Old Testament. Uh, rather, he, he, we have to interpret the whole Old Testament through him. Such a foundational point. And so Jesus Christ crucified is the ultimate criteria by which we assess the degree to which our own behavior is in line with God's character and the degree to which we assess what in nature comes from God and what doesn't. And whatever is consistent with that kind of love, whatever it conforms to that kind of beauty, that awesomeness, that breathtaking, uh, incomprehensible, unfathomable, glorious nature of God, whatever's consistent, we can say, oh, that ultimately uh, comes from God. It may come from God through people or from God through nature, but it ultimately goes back to God. Um, but whatever's not consistent with that, it ultimately, we have to assess it as coming from, as Jesus says in Matthew 11, this an enemy has done. Or Matthew 13, this an enemy has done. It ultimately comes from wills other than God. Uh, whether it's human wills or angelic wills, it's wills that are, are at odds with God and they have brought about a state of affairs uh, that characterizes this war zone. We live in a war zone, folks. And we're called to uh, align our hearts with God in order to manifest his will on earth as it is in heaven and push back all forces of darkness. But to do that, we've got to know uh, what is of God and what is not of God. So often, what is not of God gets attributed to God. And so, of course, his character gets slimed. He gets blamed for all the crap that humans bring about and all the crap that nature brings about. No, God is good all the time, and goodness is defined by the cross. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. God bless you guys. Live in love as Christ has loved you and gave his life for you. Bye-bye.